Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Jamie Levy. Jamie is a world-leading UX product strategist based in Los Angeles, California. For more than 30 years, she has been a pioneer of digital products and services, working for Fortune 500 companies and award-winning agencies across many sectors. The author of the best-selling book, UX Strategy, Product Strategy Techniques for Devising Innovative Solutions, which has been translated into nine languages and is now in its second edition. Jamie knows a thing or two about UX strategy. And she's so passionate about UX strategy that she regularly delivers both public and private workshops, online masterclasses, and speeches at conferences such as Interaction Latin America, From Business to Buttons, and UX Week on top of her consulting engagements. Jamie also shares her knowledge with the upcoming generation of UXers, having previously taught product design and strategy at universities, including the University of Southern California, New York University, Claremont Graduate University, Royal College of Art, the University of Applied Sciences Potsdam, and the University of Oxford. A straight talker who pulls no punches, I've been looking forward to exploring UX strategy and the changing nature of our field with Jamie on Brave UX today. Jamie, welcome to the show. Brandon, Brandon, thank you for having me. I hope I can live up to that amazing bio. Who is that person? That's all you. That's all you. And I'm sure I have no doubt, given our pre-recording chat, that you will live up, live up to those expectations. And Jamie, I believe you have a connection, a bit of a connection to New Zealand, and it's a musical one. What's the story there? Yeah, it goes back to, you know, the post-punk era, actually, in, in the late 80s. I was living in, in Europe and someone turned me on to this New Zealand compilation that was put out by Flying Nun. All of a sudden, you know, I, I got exposed to all these amazing bands, you know, and, you know, one of the bands I really loved was uh, The Chills. And another band that I really liked on there was this band, uh, they, they were they became Belter Space. I know they had another name before that. But then I ended up hooking up, is what I guess people would say, although it turned into a full-on relationship, with the drummer of Belter Space, Brent. And, uh, you know, it was really great to have that experience because I got to go on tour with them when they toured parts of Europe, including going to Berlin, and then on tour through the U.S. when they opened for Pavement and kind of to see what it's like and how horrible it is to really be in a band that's struggling, you know, but they were such sweet guys, um, you know, you know, and it, it really, uh, I, I regret forever when I had the option to go with them to Europe versus go with them to New Zealand where they were like headlining and famous that I did not go to New Zealand. That would have been the most amazing experience to see that so some other time so just let's rewind that a little bit how did you go from getting a, a mix cd or a mixtape to actually dating the drummer of one of the one of the bands like how does that happen 
Well, you know, New York City, I went, I was, you know, in New York City living there after I went to NYU. Um, a friend of mine uh, was going through a bit of a, you know, alcoholic crisis. And he's like, hey, do you need a place to stay? And I hated my horrible apartment there. He's come check out my loft, you know, and I went to his two-story loft on Avenue A and it was really amazing. And he's like, would you like it? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love it. And he's like, well, it's $800 a month, but there's two floors. But the thing is, is that there's this drummer living upstairs from this band. And um, I'm like, oh my God, what band? Oh God. It's like, uh, you know, Belcher Space. And, and so basically we moved in together. <laughs> As as tenants <laughs> that were you know invited by this person simultaneously and given different floors and you know fell I guess in love I don't know what the you know in love plus drugs plus music plus New York City and you know but that was a really fun experience to get to know someone from New Zealand and he was a very sweet man sorry that I can't remember all the last names in the bands my memory shot. Oh, all good. What a collision. What a what a wonderful collision. Now, you mentioned that you didn't end up going back to New Zealand with him. Have you been to New Zealand since? You know, I've never been there. Um, I've been to Australia. I came out there a few years ago and did um, a workshop in Melbourne and then another workshop in Sydney and visited a cousin of mine who lives in some lakeside community near Sydney. So I did make it over to Australia, but woo! Oh my God, what a trippy place. <laughs> yeah, they they speak funny over there. I've just lost all of my Australian audience now, but that, that's okay. We're, we're okay with that. No, it's all in, all in jest. Very no, nice it was interesting too. Sure. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're our, our cousins over there and, and we love them very much. Now, I, I wanted to come back to the what you'd mentioned about music and the post the post punk sort of era. I was talking to Greg Bernstein, who is now a user research lead at Condé Nast a couple of weeks ago, and he ended up somehow meeting the creative director of REM, and then that threw him into his early career of designing record labels mm. and uh, record covers for punk bands. And I asked him the question that I'm about to ask you: Is punk dead? <laughs> Yeah, I, all these is something dead, I think is a ridiculous question. I'm sorry to say. Someone just asked me yesterday, <laughs> is our personas dead? Like, what is punk? For me, what's your version of punk? See, I'm possibly a little bit younger than you, but my version of punk that I was exposed to would have been around the time of like the mid to late 90s. So bands like No Effects, Pennywise. Uh, me first and the gimme gimmies. So they were probably, I don't know what you'd call second or third wave. So we're not talking about the clash or the misfits or some of the ones that preceded them, but they of mm. course did come into the picture, but that's kind of my, my idea of punk. Yeah. Well, those guys, those bands are over. I don't know. I, I think if we're talking about punk as an ethic, it's not dead. It's a way of life, a way of seeing the world. And I, it's, like saying that anything is anarchy is dead or democracy is dead. Like you just can't, you know, it, it's ridiculous to try to, you know, make it into more than just a semantic, semantic debate, semantical debate. And so, but if you're talking about, you know, music, you know, like everybody, like some of my friends who are a little bit older that grew up in LA, they got to see some, you know, the germs and, and some of these earlier bands when they were much cooler than when I saw them. 
you know, because I didn't start releasing bands until 82 and a lot of the, and all my really favorite bands, all the post-punk stuff from, from London, you know, if you think about like the Joy Division and, and the early first records of Gang of Four, you know, that stuff came out. I was a little bit, you know, where my mom wasn't like letting me go to clubs in Hollywood. So, you know, there's like, there's always that. And then, you know, so my era of punk is more of the post-punk stuff and, I think as you know, depending on when you came of age, there's like certain bands that are going to be that your sweet spot that are influenced that you love that you're going to love for the rest of your life because, you know, like my son is obsessed. He's almost 17 with this band called The Garden, and they're amazing. But they're amazing because they sound like a mashup of like Joy Division meets Big Black. You know, like eight tonal. You know. And you hear Gang of Four and you hear all these other things, but he doesn't hear it. And they're great. They, you know, but how much originality they have, I don't know. You know, so I feel like the intention to get people excited about music that's a bit aggressive is so important because mainstream music is boring. But the part of punk, and this is more of a existential crisis where people you know probably in your area are enough to discovered music not even just punk by socializing with people in real life and going to shows and going to record stores and hearing what they're playing and now there's you don't need to put any work you don't need to be social whatsoever you can sit in your little you know basement and listen to spotify or whatever and have it suggest stuff and so there's no effort. There's, I don't think there's as much investment into it. It's more disposable. I could be wrong. I mean, ask the Gen Z millennials how that, you know, but I do feel that there's a bit of a, the punk spirit or any kind of spirit about, you know, music that's aggressive or breaking new ground or has something to say politically. You know, it, it's hard to um, get that spirit across to me without it really being a, a live socialized you know experience yeah everything is really served to us it's so easy now as you said just to get at everything straight away you know i used to buy uh, punk mixtapes on on cd right so i'm still in the cd era and they were a way of discovering different bands that i hadn't heard before but now you're right you just jump on spotify this potential reduction in that punk ethos or attitude that I believe you're talking about, and don't let me put words in your mouth, not that I think that you will. How has that reduction or that shift in, say, the last 20 years, if at all, impacted the way in which UXs who are newer to the field, people that might be of my generation and the generations after, are taking to their work in terms of it really breaking new ground or really coming from a place that I get the sense that people have... Um, who came into the industry when you did may have brought with them to a greater degree? I mean, I feel like that answer is if we look at new apps or platforms and see something cool, you know, I, I don't want to really say this because I think it's depressing for Gen Z millennial people. Like uh, my friend was over last night who was, he was in his forties and we were having this conversation, you know, it was like one of those anti-millennial rants because there's <laughs> so many lazy people out there, you know, who were helicoptered to death and freak out. I'm triggered by, well, you know, and it's like, Oh my God, I can't even have a conversation without you being triggered, <laughs> you know, and there, and this sort of preciousness of 
I don't want to, don't, don't say anything to hurt my feelings. You know, like I'm having that issue now where I can't critique a certain person or manage them in a certain way. And I, I don't know if it's this, and, and I, I feel like there's, it's like a huge lost generation gap. And I don't want to speak. I don't want to say that's true about people worldwide. I, I can't speak to that. I feel like I can only speak to Americans in my experience, you know, managing or teaching that generation. And, and what I see and what I also see through my teenage son is the lack of heroes. Like in my, certainly in my 20s, you could come up to me or, or 19 say, who's the most amazing graphic designer out there? And I'd be like, David Carson, you know, or Neville Brody. I could just like list them, you know, like look at their amazing, look what they did with fonts. Look at this amazing thing. And I want to do that somehow, but with interactive, you know, and, or you think of like people who are outspoken pundits, you know, saying things, you know, writers, like, I don't know, are there millennial writers who are just like breaking new ground? Are there millennial bands? Like, I don't, there's so many like zillion bands that come and go. Like, I'm wondering like, who are the heroes for this generation to inspire them? Because I don't feel like they want to necessarily be inspired by old asses like me waxing poetic about back in the day. Because the truth is, back in my day, there was only like 20 of us when I started. You know, I was the first girl who was really doing, you know, interactive stuff. Certainly, you know, that was why I got so much hype. And what that allowed for me to do, I mean, yes, I had to work really hard to discover and what to push the technology because it wasn't like, oh, let me Google how to make something like low bandwidth and play off a floppy disk. Like I totally invent that experience and research it and no one I could call that helped me um, or, or look something up. There was no, no, nothing to look things up. You know, you can go to an encyclopedia or a microfish, you know, it's not there now. But the flip side of that is I could do almost anything, you know, whether it was with storytelling or interface design, integrating multimedia, like doing the first person, like I'm going to have this thing on Word where I have three DJs on this illustration. I'm gonna hire this top illustrator who never done something for the web ever and is gonna make me this picture for 75 bucks. And I'm gonna put DJ Spooky, DJ Olive, and DJ whoever was really cool in New York at that 1996, you know? And then when you click on it, it goes to a page with their bio. And when you click on their turntable, it loads up the real audio player where I've managed to digitize a mixtape of them DJing so that people could listen to it worldwide. I mean, can you imagine that I could be the first person to ever think of that or do that? Like that would be impossible to do now. Everything, so much has been done. It's really hard. And I did five of those things a day, five days a week at Word. And I had people to spitball these ideas with. And it was like, oh, why don't we try this? That's never been done. Why don't we try it? And, and to be in an environment where you're getting paid to try that, you know, and, and, you know, my whole career before with that, you know, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but it's like, so I feel there's one side of being in, you know, getting into a field that's early where there's so much opportunity um, that, you know, is my, was something I could leverage, but at the same time, it's much harder. It was harder to do the work. And now I feel it's flipped where millennials have to, if they want to do something original, that's innovative, now they have to work very, very hard to figure out what that is, to find something original, 
whether it be interactive, you know, UX stuff or music or film or any other form of commercial art in particular. But then to implement yeah, it isn't and- so hard. <laughs> they can Google that. Yeah, that's it. That's the reverse, right? Yeah. You can create anything you want to create now, but to stand out from the, you know, probably extra couple of billion people that have come online since that time in the mid nineties is uh is almost a gargantuan task. You know, you talked about Carson and looking at your heroes as you're growing up and being able to reference those. And there's that cultural connection to what you're doing in the moment at that time and the shoulders of the giants, if you like, that you are drawing on and standing on that have come before you. I was talking to Bob Baxley, who was uh, one of the former heads of design at, uh, at Apple. He was saying that this is the most important software, is the most important cultural medium of our time. And I never really considered it in that way, but he also made made the point that it's an unattributed medium. And this is sort of tied into what you were saying before. You could reference heroes from other creative arts, but I don't know anyone that can really reference heroes when it comes to product design or product uh, uh, in the same way and the, and the, the way that we work with this medium now. Very outside of like Johnny Ives or whatever who made like the iPhone. Yeah. Or- yeah, you know, or talk about Sergey Brin, you know, and, and Google, you know, or, yeah. It, but they, people certainly talk about Steve Jobs as if he designed things, you know. You know, but yeah, maybe so. I, I, I would expect that there might be articles and books about, you know, cutting edge product designers that are out there and podcast, you know. But yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure because now we have so many podcasts, so much media, you know, like, mm. oh my God, you know. So disposable, right? So like, disposable. Just so disposable. Oh my God. Like, you know, when I, I think about when I started and I wanted people to know about my work and there wasn't the web, I would have to get people to write articles about it. I would send my discs or send my films or send my whatever. It was just marketing. And I think that is what made me strong as an author. I think people forget that, or don't even know, here's the secret. And I I bet you know this, is that whatever you make, whether it be design, you know, product, a digital product or a book or a podcast, film, whatever amount of time you spend making that thing, you need to spend that amount of time marketing that thing. Otherwise, you've made it in vain because nobody will hear about it or see it. And I work very hard on my stuff. And like, in, in lately, the thing was the book. And I know the reason it got to best selling wasn't necessarily it was better than all these other O'Reilly books or other UX books. It was because I was like constantly touring and doing workshops and sharing stuff. And, you know, and because now I'm so over it and I'm like not pushing it at all, it has to just go on its own, like just move forward, like on its own fart, you know? And it's like, because I'm like, okay, I'm kind of sick of all this stuff and I don't want to do self-promotion, but it basically derails the, the train. And so anyone who is very talented as a product designer, if they don't make some awesome portfolio and start writing articles and start doing podcasts and be seen as an evangelist and a leader, a spokesperson and they don't, and they do it consistently. Like, Oh, I'm going to do two podcasts and then they don't do anymore or whatever it is, articles. And then how do you stand out? You're going to put them on medium with all that other rub rubbish, you know, it's, but you have to do it. You have to be consistent. 
you have to do it. Like I didn't just make one floppy disk. I made five and I didn't just do whatever company I worked with. It was just a con constantly releasing stuff because you're really only as good as what you've done lately. Yeah, you have to show up. And that's that's the other part of that bargain you make when you create, which is what you're getting at, Jamie, is this sort of idea that people will come and find it and see it without it being pushed. I mean, you took two years to write your book, I believe. I heard you say that that was two years of low to no income in that in that process. I mean, why on earth would you not choose to really give it a good push and really get behind it and be proud of that and get it out there. I mean, it just makes no sense. So you're hundred percent. I, the same thing with the podcast that you've raised, it's hard, like one half of the job is actually just getting it into people's ears or in front of their eyes. Otherwise, what's it for? You mentioned having to do the work. I just want to come to something that I heard somebody ask you. I think it was the end of that talk you gave down in Argentina. I think it was Rio in brazil oh rio yeah right in brazil yeah and they asked you this question where the leaders of their company they were frustrated that they hadn't embraced ux right as or digital transformation as this person asking had hoped that they would and you said to to them and i'm going to quote you now i promise you no one is going to ask you to do anything besides your job you have to decide i'm going ahead I'm going to make this prototype on my own time at night or on the weekend. How much effort and risk and just sheer brute force to stand out do we have to be willing to take in our careers? If we want to be leaders and we want to be successful and we don't have nepotism or some other end to get us promoted, then we need to have killer you know, work and trying to do it if you're starting out or you're just learning new tools or you're really trying to push it or they're making you do some other garbage during your business hours, but you want to get ahead, then you put whatever hours into it so that you have something that pushes it, you know, to stand out from everybody else. Especially when it, I think what I was referring to more is that a lot of people don't, the companies aren't convinced of doing any types of experiments or running research as an experiment mm -hmm. using prototypes to push product strategy. And so they're like, I don't get to do it, so I don't do it. Well, nobody paid me or had me while I was doing my shitty desktop publishing and typesetting job. So Jamie, go make that floppy disk over there, you know, and, and then, you know, no, I drove home from my shitty job, got a beer, ate some quesadillas and then opened up my, you know, turned on my computer and, and then created the floppy disk. And, and, you know, not to just go on the, the floppy disk, but that's what I did when I was 22 to 26, you know, and if I didn't do the floppy disk and I had, then once I had it, this thing, because there was no distribution, I had to go put it in the bookstore and putting it in the bookstore, all of a sudden people started seeing it and that opened up more opportunities. And so people need to be self-motivated and be driven on their own if they want to have those jobs that are really, really interesting. They need the portfolio or something to convince either this where they're at now or the next job that doing these processes and tactics, you know, whatever it is, you know, particularly, you know, in that example, rapid prototyping, if they're not getting to do it during the day, then they should get really fast at it. That's what you need to do is get good and fast. So you can just like articulate your concepts and get them in front of 
whoever it is that you need to convince. So they look and tell an amazing story. And so they need, people need to do the work. There's no shortcuts. Yeah. You have to do the work. It sounds like what you're saying is that design is more than a job. I think, I think it is. I, I guess if you see your, it's like, I wouldn't say design, your career is more than a mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. I mean, if so, if their career, if their desire, if their desire is to be a designer, which wasn't or isn't my thing at all, my thing was not anymore. Now I'm burned out, but it was, I did, I did my thing, you know, I'm, I'm good. It was to be an inventor and my way of expressing these inventions was using technology because I decided during graduate film school that doing narrative long format films was kind of boring, you know, and I didn't want to do music videos for MTV. So I, you know, so I just look at it as what is it that you're really into? What, what is it about prototyping? It's Please don't tell me it's because you want to like get good at, you know, envision or some garbage tool that you can learn overnight or, you know, like, okay, get good at it. But really what you're getting good at is what is this, you know, what is the story that you're telling? You know, how are you really making that product alive without building any product and not over designing it, but showing the concept so that you push that concept far enough in front of people that it it's so far along that they can't imagine doing it any other way. You've taken liberties. You've taken those affordances. You you have the freedom by pushing it forward. So someone, those bosses can't go and like, no, we should do it like this. Like, oh, now you've thought these steps ahead and you only have that freedom to do it sometimes when nobody's looking over your shoulder, which might be now with people working from home, they might be able to do it during the day because, you know, a lot of our jobs we can do in a, a few hours of the day. So you got the other five hours to, to do something where you're really pushing your skill set and taking it up, you know, a notch. Yeah, you said that you chose to work in the interactive medium as opposed to, say, long format or music videos in terms of film because you weren't interested by those other mediums. And when you were talking about that, I was it just occurred to me that it's almost, it seems like you were almost trying to, like, satisfy a need that sits beneath the medium that you chose, but through the medium you were able to do that. So it's almost like people have to realize what is it, what is it actually that's going to give me satisfaction and then how can I use the medium, whether it be software or whatever, in order to to get some of that satisfaction. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, Wow, this is an interesting conversation, Brendan. You're good at this. If if your pull is to do something innovative, then it's definitely you're looking at what is how am I going to deliver it? What tool set am I using? Is it going to be more about? I mean, people could. There's still so much room to explore. I feel with the tools and nonlinear storytelling, like that one thing a fine millennial did was that girl that did that thing. I don't know. It was Instagram storytelling about Anna Frank. You know, like, why are there 20 of those? You know, it got so much hype and it was so, and it probably got a lot of hype because it was, you know, about the Holocaust. Like, uh, but it's like, but she did something new and she put herself into it. And, and that's, that's a key point. She put herself into it. Like, that's a huge point. How often have you seen that in your students of them really putting themselves into it? You know, I quit teaching last year. I'm done with that. And it was because I saw nothing from my students at a couple of universities. I just saw people trying to either cheat their way through, 
UX, uh, an easy A and a UX course at one university and another one that was just, they're so overwhelmed by just learning how to use a computer because they happen to be in a psychology department, you know, and learning the tools that they trying to teach them anything really theoretical or be innovative was too soon. You know, a couple of them could handle it, but a lot of them were still new at the tool set. You know, another thing that influenced me was my decision to go into, you know, at that point, nonlinear storytelling in short format and interactive was because when I was in the graduate film school, I had worked on a film, a very cool film about Sonic Youth and John Zorn. And they brought me in, of course, as a production assistant, a PA, a lowly PA. And for six weeks, I was like either I wasn't watching them shoot the film. I wasn't involved in any creative decision making. Not to say I had any talent at that point. I just produced a bunch of high videos and edited them on some. But I produced them. You know, they were mine. I decided what to shoot. I decided how the edits should be. And so now I'm watching the back of trucks. And so no gear gets stolen and I'm driving people around and I'm sitting around waiting and doing nothing, mostly not even getting to watch the shoot. And I was like, oh no, is this what it's going to be like? You know, and, and, and going on enough shoots where there are no female directors and being in a, an environment, I was like, oh no. Also, I realized, oh no, I'm going to have to work 12 hour days for weeks and weeks and then have no work. Like, how am I going to have a life? That sucks. And I started realizing like that it was like the, whole career around making films was something that I couldn't stomach in terms of my ego and wanting to have creative control. And in terms of who, you know, that I was a woman, it's still really bad for women in film. I mean, that's only because they're big, shining a big bright light at it now. So, you know, there's more opportunity for different minorities, but. No, wait till that light starts shining on advertising. (laughs) Exactly. But I saw this opportunity to just be able to do whatever I wanted and uh, with this new medium that no one knew what the hell it could do, where people were still doubting it well before the web. So I really got a chance to taste what it's like to explore, you know, but I still encourage so much for people to just think a little bit more about what it is you, what is it that you really want to like come up with a personal product project beyond whatever your master's degree is or was and like what is it that you can make or even make a fake product if it's somewhere that you want to work you know like let's say you want to go work for a a dating app company go ahead and prototype the most craziest dating app you could ever imagine that makes online dating better since it's the most horrible thing in the world and just imagine what it could be with no one telling you what to do and put that in your portfolio as just concepts. Like, give yourself the freedom to use And then mind. tell the story behind it, right? Yeah. Like, tell, have a story. Like, not just some manufactured, you know, design system off the shelf kind of UI kit representation of something boring. Put yourself in it. Go and road test it. Put it in front of some people. Yeah. Record some of those sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Do the work. I don't know. I did the work. And do I just see work. a bunch yeah. of scary cat and i'm not just it's all generations if everybody was like how i was then we'd have a lot of broken anxiety ridden folks out there who invented a lot of cool <laughs> stuff <laughs> where would be everyone else there can't always be everybody like that but if you are the type of person that really wants to have creative control and be an innovator then 
it's going to be a lot more work than just saying, I'm going to go do a job where I can get off at five or 6 PM and go home and have a life and not be stressed that there's, I get that too. Yeah. I often beat up on the education system, the Western education system, having been through it, through it. And, you know, we, we all have to, to various degrees if we're in the West and I can't help, but put some of the blame on the perceived lack of choice or the constraint and choice that people choose about where they spend and invest their time at university. Because what I mean by that is that we spend a lot of our time and we're taught to spend a lot of our time thinking about what box we can fit in when we finish our formal education. So we, we do things at university to get jobs, yeah. which seems absurd to me now that I'm 10, 15 years into my career after university, looking back on it, how much of the, and again, we're getting pretty deep and dark here, but I feel like this is a good space to, to hold for a little while. Like how much of this is actually because of this, I suppose it's the industrialization of education that we have put ourselves through the last 100, 150 years, like how much of this is just the system manifesting in a, a lack of dream and ambition and ideals? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's gotten definitely commodified. It's been that way a long time. And UX is now just this gross, disgusting part of it where people think they don't, I mean, maybe they don't need to go to university, go get master's. If people could just be self-motivated, they could teach themselves all this stuff. It's on the internet. You know, they could watch lectures by inspiring innovators and designers all day long and never run out and just be making their own cool stuff and making the killer portfolio and getting a job. Jeez Louise. But like they aren't self-motivated. So they put themselves into a framework, you know, these structured environment like a graduate school and then all of a sudden they have to take these certain classes in a certain order and whether it be you know a, a wonderful university or even like you know general assembly design foundry whatever these shortcut technical degrees they come out and they're like i have a ux certificate or i have a master's in design unthinking you know it's like oh great um They've now passed that test, but it makes me, from my experience as a professor and seeing so few people really stand out with whatever their thesis was. What about the days, and Germany has this, I love Germany so much for different things, but like a lot of my friends who have kids who are 17 to 20, they're not in the university, they're in these apprenticeship programs for three years, learning some highly specific thing, like engineering like parts for you know a water system and then you know his son's like in these classes and then working and just learning something and then we're learning a work ethic you know like having I, I feel like the idea of just being in college for 22 years you're just a child why are you deciding when you're a child to go to I always regretted going to graduate school straight out of college like I wish I had gotten a job and had some more you know but I did, you know, I, I could have waited a couple. I'm glad I didn't, you know, because I would have come in later on in technology. Like, it was perfect timing for me as far as where tech was moving. But I feel like people need to, it's so much stress on these degrees as if they're the a means to an end when they're not. You know, it's really, you know, like, let people learn 
passion and let people learn just what it's like to work and go to this job and say, oh, I don't want this to be, I want to sit in front of a computer all day. I want to interact with people. I want to be out there researching and interviewing. Like they should learn what it's going to be like. Who knows? 100%. We never allow ourselves and I'm trying not to do this with my son who's three and a half, right? So he's got a few years yet, but every, every moment counts, I feel as a parent without being a helicopter, like you're touching on before, but we don't give children and young people enough space to explore. We put them into tracks and we encourage them to lock themselves into tracks mm. far too early. So the conversation that my wife and I are having and my wife, my wife knows this better than anyone. I mean, she has a PhD in in uh, neuroscience and she's also a medical doctor. So she's been through the whole track of education, right? She's still going through it. She's, she's doing ophthalmology now, but like what, at what age should we send Teddy to primary school, which I believe is called grade school in the U S for me, I'm in no rush. I don't want to send him on his birthday. If he's, if he doesn't have to go, like let him, let him enjoy. Um, We lock ourselves, as I said, into these tracks and I don't know if it does us a service, and I got the sense, Jamie, hearing you talk about, you said you were burned out and you said you quit teaching and it's, it's fairly clear that you're not that plussed about the state of the young people coming through education in general. Why did you quit teaching? You know, I get the sense you're quite bummed out about that and teaching is something that you have loved in the past. I did it long enough, 30 years. I started teaching when I was... I mean, I taught my first class at NYU. They hired, they would hire the graduates to teach the classes because we were the only ones that knew the software. And <laughs> I love that. So, of course, I was like, yeah, I'll be a professor at NYU and ITP, <clears throat> you know. And um, so I was always teaching people to make stuff. And, you know, and I t- taught at different universities and during uh, the last couple years of teaching the classes online, I was already kind of over it in the final class that I taught in person at the University of Southern California. I was getting tired of the, I wasn't enjoying it. I was not, I was sick of the babysitting and the, the cheating and the, the, the apathy. And I was like, I don't need to do this anymore. When I was writing my book, it was great because I could, create these lectures and test it out and then get back the homework and say, did it, did the homework connect? Did, or did I not mm-hmm. tell them something? If I yep. add this line here, add this slide here, add this paragraph to my book, it'll make that how I teach it so much better. And so the teaching drove the book, but once the second edition was done and I co-wrote that with one of my students from USC, who was amazing. Mm-hmm. And we wrote it over zoom with google docs for you know a year and a half and it was very collaborative and super fun and so there was no reason to teach and i certainly did not want to go mask up and go teach and okay everybody we're gonna have a couple of war you know like eh. sorry what was that jen i didn't <laughs> quite hear you. you know like nah no i'm not doing that you know, yeah, and I feel I like to do things where you're like, you know, once I hit 30 years, what do I need to say? 31 years. That's lame. You know, like I taught at top universities and some not top everything from nonlinear storytelling to UX strategy that became a book 
for 30 years. It's enough. As my father said 20 years ago, stop teaching people UX because you're the word. What, what is it when you eat people? Canna, cannibal? Cannibalizing? You're training, you're training your I'm cannibalizing training your my, my future jobs. I'm teaching everyone to be me. <laughs> and so all the opportunity, like I taught so many people, like 5,000 people to be UX people and to go out and, and get jobs. And it's a generous act. It's enough. Yeah, the book's enough. Like, it's like, I need to, I want to like cook and plan and enjoy my son before he disappears to NYU or wherever he thinks he's going and enjoy my life. Like, I just, I just, I just really, you know, I want to, I want to enjoy life. And I feel like I said enough and it's up to the, your generation and the ones after you to, to tell their, I, I told my stories in the book, you know? So yeah, you know, I have a full-time job now. I, you know, I'm getting paid right now doing nothing but talking to you. Ka-ching, ka-ching, every hour. And then every two weeks, the money just goes into my checking account and then I can go blow it on sushi or my sign or whatever. And that's just fine. It wasn't fine 10 years ago. I was like, no, I have to be inventing something and teaching and evangelizing and touring the world. Like, ugh, I just came back from Denmark and Estonia. It was horrible to travel during the thing that we're not talking about. Yes, we're not talking about it. We still haven't said it. Yeah. And we're not going to say it, are we, Jamie? Nope, we're not going to say it. We're, we're nope. dancing around it. We're not going to say it. But yes, it, we are. it's not the best time to be touring. And no one wants to going to online conferences is stupid. You're not connecting. So I don't, I don't need to do that stuff. I felt like I really gave it my all. And now I want to give myself more of that, you know? I mean, I get the sense that you have been frustrated and that you've made some choices recently to invest in other areas of your life, like you talked about, like just enjoying it, not having to have that pressure and that stress, that burn, that investment in others that you've been doing for such a long time. And I really appreciate you being open to have that quite a real conversation, right? This isn't like, we're not putting our best happy face forward here, right? Like this is a real conversation that people yeah. are listening to yeah. i've also heard you you describe yourself in the past as a and it's clear i mean look at look at the body of work look at what you've achieved as an overachiever so given that you have recently gone through or may still be going through burnout right how does that sit with jamie the overachiever i'm trying to overachieve on other things in my mm -hmm. personal life or actually work on why, what the overachieving is about, because it's a distraction from focusing on your emotional and physical health. Like, I, I don't, you know, like I go on walks around the Arroyo every day. Sure, I listen to podcasts, but I'm starting not to listen to podcasts about like teaching myself German or listening to anything related to tech, God forbid, just listening to stuff about life like i love this show called the daily you know but i always love investigative journalism you know and and then going running and listening to my son's favorite bands and you know like trying to figure out just everything like cooking a recipe that's beyond my pay grade going to get those ingredients at the farmer's market and connecting with the people selling the ingredients and asking them you know did this cow have friends before you killed it <laughs> Um, 
I, I think you should have a conversation with Peter Morville about that. He'll have some thoughts and feelings on that that question. Uh, is he like hardcore vegan, or is he like I can, well, I can eat meat? I don't give a shit. See, this is. This is the interesting thing. He he's vegan-ish was the way that he described it. I mean, obviously, you know, he's the author or co-author of the Polar Bear book, and he's an information architect. And I thought that was an interesting way for a information architect who's you know usually puts things in boxes and labels them to be. Um, but he was way more on like I'm more about spectrums when it comes to human behavior than absolutes. So anyway, that's a side note, but um, he's vegan-ish and he loves, he loves, he loves goats. I don't know why he loves goats. I think because they, there's something that they do, like, I don't know, they, they do something that's sustainable that I don't know what it is exactly, but people were, there was a goat craze going on in LA for a while. I never quite understood it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I feel like this need, it, it's kind of pathetic maybe that this need to get attention to prove myself over and over again has also been the undoing of Jamie and Levy, where I don't put that same amount of energy and, and love into myself and into my relationships. And I need to stop doing that. It's just not healthy. And so that's really, you know, like, it's like the intersection of I've said enough, I need to chill out now. You know, my book is good. You know, I'm proud of it. I also have this whole art career that was my, the start of my career. That was the digital art. And so I'm using this opportunity with this full-time job when I have downtime, it's like, well, I'm not sitting there, you know, throwing paper up in the air. I can, you know, work on the website that has my old digital art and I could research on doing an NFT. Like I can, you know, or not like I should, it's like, I can't even, you know, I'm like this person with, with, with the list, you know, I got lists everywhere, like and lists up there, you know, and I like to knock things off, but now it's like, there's two lists. There's the list of being productive and furthering my career, which I should stop doing completely. And the list of removing things from my life that give me stress or cost me money so that I can have a better life. And that that's the, those are the two lists now. And so, yeah, the overachieving, if I'm going to put it into something, it's to, it's to get myself to be an underachiever who, you know, optimizes her work hours and her time to be a healthy, happy human. It sounds though that you still have that creative fire burning, like there are still things on that list that might not be commercial and they might not fall into the nine to five and they might sit alongside, you know, walks in nature and listening to your son's favorite band and cooking a recipe that's above your pay grade, but they're still, they're still there. Yeah. We'll see. I don't want to make anything new. I want to document my earlier work for my career. That's my one left career thing is, to basically minimalize my life, which means going through the closet and going through like the 2000 fan letters I got and picking out really the three most interesting ones in terms of how they look and what they said and getting rid of everything, getting rid of all the books that I didn't read or will never read, you know, or they were horrible. And why do I have 200 books? I should have five, you know, like what's all this stuff. And, and, you know, but especially all my, artifacts from my 30 years like I really would love one day before I lose my mind entirely or, or die to have my work 
in an archive for someone to learn from it, maybe. Maybe I'm totally, you know, like Sunset Boulevard, I'm waiting for my close up, you know, but, or maybe it's really like, since I'm not teaching, it's like, well, if someone does want to know about my stuff, other than all the articles and podcasts about me, let them look at the stuff. I want to throw it away. And, I, and it's paper, it's videos, it's in all these different forms. And I'd love it to be just minimalized to just the best stuff. And on, on jamielevy.com slash art. And then I have a friend, enough friend, a guy who represents me as an artist, sounds so bloody pretentious. He's trying to get me that museum retrospective or that group show with other people who were innovators back in the day. And I don't want to have to be scrambling if that opportunity presents itself. I want to be like, oh, while you're figuring out what artists should be in that show, guess who's the artist that has everything explained, that has all the articles, everything together, all the art in the highest format available descriptions written. I want to have all that stuff kind of, you know, archived in, a, in, in the best way. Rhizome did this incredible thing for me, this institution in New York City that works with the museums there, the new museum. And they took my floppy disks, including the Billy Idol floppy disk, and, and made it so that you can stick a US, you know, because you can't get these you can't, I have a six, six can't game. you can't anymore. get the computers to start now and play. They, you know, people have been yeah. trying to do yeah. this born digital shows and you can't get them to work and you can't distribute them. So these guys made it so you can, they simulate hypercard and director projectors by just taking a USB, sticking it into a, into the computer and restarting it. And all of a sudden it's like, woo, we're in 19, we're in 1988 or 1990. And people can interact with it and see this this crass interactive stuff that I was making with the, you know, Minutemen samples and the Love and Rockets art. Like it was so punk rock and so crazy. And now instead of just watching a video of it on YouTube, you can actually. And so because they did this wonderful thing for me and it's been in some shows, I want to get all the stuff to back that stuff up just in case someone gets the bright idea like, hey, what about what inspired all this interactive stuff back in the day before the web, BW? You know, what does that look like? Well, because all that stuff basically evaporated, you know, all of our stuff even now is evaporating. We'll back up all our photos and our films and then they'll get backed up and not backed up and then we lose everything. I feel like I want to archive it just in case. And that's a fun thing for me to do is kind of look at digital art, uh, older stuff and think about the context and and then just have it done and then I'll spend less time you know they'll come up with some other project I don't know and I was gonna say and and then what? I don't know man you know, like and then I don't what? know I I got like three months of this stuff I don't know I, how about if I can learn to go to sleep at night without get rid of insomnia that could take two years I don't know yeah. You know, we've talked about the apathy that you've observed as a professor and the converse of that through your personal story of, you know, really like burning brightly, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm into this, I'm putting myself into all of this and I'm doing this for 30 years and then eventually coming to a place where you've, you're choosing whether by forced choice or your own volition, I don't know to do actively do something different and put that side of you not in the past, but to the side for now. And th this is, 
I don't know if this is a question or if it's just an observation, but seeing both of those sides, you know, that distinct apathy and then like this creative passion and fire that then might drive you to a place where you need to make different choices for your own health. Would you do it differently if you could do it again? Yeah, definitely. But that's easy to see with, you know, what's it called? 2020 hindsight. hindsight. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I can imagine a different existence for me now that is a bit more is different than what I, 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 I have a, a lot of things to be grateful for, but yeah, I, I feel like I could have done better in some ways with my personal life. You know, it was just a sacrifice. Mm, that's a big trade-off, isn't it? It can be. I think it can be, you know, so, but I think, you know, maybe it's not too late. You have to really decide, you know, you have to pick a lane, <laughs> mm. you know, in your career. Not too early in life though, right? Yeah. But pick a lane. I think by the time you're 25, like, what is it that I want to mm. do? Am I going to start a big family or am I going to put all my energy into a career or both and figure out how that's going to work? Um, so that you're happy and balanced. It's so easy to th see things retrospectively and say, oh, I would do these things different. Of course I could say, oh God, why didn't after 9-11 I come back from New York and go to San Francisco and then I would have been one of the early people at whatever crappy major platform there and then I would have gazillions of dollars or something. Like, I don't even know what that would look like. Like, what would me with, you know, beyond just having a million dollars, would I, my life be so much better if I had $20 million? You know, you know, like, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Hypotheticals. I just keep coming back to this quote, and it's a line from a, it's actually a line from a Neil Young song. Um, the song's My My Hey Hey. And when you were talking, it made me think of that line, it's better to burn out than to fade away. <laughs> And I don't know, I don't know why, and I'm not suggesting, I mean, you, you've, you've self-labeled yourself as burnt out, but I think it's so much better to have, and again, I'm imposing my own view on top of your situation. So tell me to back off if you need, but to get to that point after all that investment of energy, that creative energy, the generosity of the teaching, all of that stuff, and to be burnt out, I think is so much better, so much better than to have never started to have faded away before you'd even lit that fire, which is what you've described that you see in some of your students. Yeah. I don't know. It's hypothetical. I think the students still, when you're young, you still have that chance to, to throw yourself out something. Yeah. I don't know. I think that it doesn't need to be, ex whatever it is, it shouldn't be so extreme. It shouldn't be extreme. Just I'm constantly in need of attention to be told that I'm great, bestseller, best this, that's too extreme. And then I'm going to do nothing at all. That's over here. You know, so I'm just trying to be like, I'm working my way this way. What's this way for the people that are, are listening closer to what? What me? I'm, I'm working my way more to be just being a regular person, you know, but I think for people who are looking to start their careers, they need to be, you know, putting their energy, you know, into getting into, you know, what, what is going to get the attention? I mean, that's kind of what it is. I mean, if you're like, oh, I'm doing it for myself. I want to be the best prototyper in the world. 
really? Okay, you have fun with that. Um, but are you doing it to make money or are you doing it to have power or both? And if it's to have power, is the power about managing people? Is the power about being able to have creative control, which was the power I desired? Being able to make things that people see and be like, whoa, that's crazy. And if the power is to like innovate and to make big experiences that people see, make the blockbuster of interactive and product design, then better start working hard. Stop reading books and start yeah, making stuff. It's not just going to happen. <laughs> yep. Now, I really love how you ended your talk at UX Greece this year. You said, and I'll quote you again now, the fear of taking risk really prevents us from exploring the world. So as we bring this conversation to a close, that really felt to me like an appropriate place to lead into my final question, which is how do we get more comfortable with taking risks with the possibility, the very real possibility that we're going to be wrong? Yeah, to figure out what, where are the gaps in your own life or in your in personal and professional. Um, my friend Rato may talk. He's been staying with me the last few days, Berlin. He's like the Berlin me and he's a professor and just, and so we had a lot of talking going on here and I heard him telling his students, <laughs> you know, I know it's during a thing right now where it's not so safe to travel, but you got to see the world and have like, I, I grew so much by being in, in living in, in a lot in Berlin in the last couple of years. I really learned how important it is to speak a second language, even though I failed at it, but I tried and I'll try again to learn German, but find out, figure out what it is that you're not so good at. Is it traveling? Is it socializing? Is it cooking? Is it exercising? Is it being good at disciplining yourself around whatever it is, eating or exercising or work habits and do something extreme, like make yourself a list and start it has to move from strategy to tactics so that you can start chipping away at things. Otherwise they just seem impossible. And so figure it out, you know, like with strategy, here I am here, where is it that you want to be? And if that thing requires you to take risks by going out with different, you know, dating a different type of person or not dating anybody at all and seeing what horrible life is as a single person, see what that's all about. You know, I always admire my guest house tenant for years. He's a violinist. Doesn't it's like I don't need relationships. I'm working. I'm making my art. Like I was never very good at that. I don't like to be alone so much. But uh, yeah, figure out what it is that you're so scared of and do that. But get on a plane and see the world. That's the best way to break out of your comfort zone and make yourself uncomfortable and and see how the version of you lives in different places in the world. And that will really disrupt yourself it's like taking acid without having to take acid you know <laughs> and that is a great thought to end on i love it disrupt yourself i think it's, it's so important and travel when the thing that we're not naming and we haven't named during this episode is over that will be a lot a lot easier jamie i've really enjoyed the depth of the conversation today and the candor and the realness 
that you've brought to that. I really, really do appreciate it. And I also appreciate your huge contribution to the field of UX that you've made over the last 30 years. I know you're feeling a bit burned out now, but I just want you to know that there are many, many, many other people like me that also appreciate you and your work. So thanks very much for coming on the show and sharing your stories and your insights with me today. You're very welcome, Brendan. You inspired a very good conversation. You're very good at this. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you're most welcome, Jamie. Good luck with everything, for sure. Someday we'll meet and have a, and have a beer in person. Get me to New Zealand. I would love that. Come to New Zealand. We'll have it in the sun. Come during the the winter in the north. It'll be it'll be wonderful. We'll have it. We'll look over over the waves. It'll be it'll be. That's great. our two year goal. Yeah, two year goal. Well, I think that probably should be safe with that thing that we're not talking about. Should be done by then. Let's hope. <laughs> Jamie, if people want to find out more about you, about your book, and and all the wonderful things that you've created, what's the best way for them to do that? J-A-I-M-E-L-E-V-Y, my website, jamielevy.com, which should lead to a lot of stuff, uh, including the book website, userexperiencestrategy.com. That's good. Uh, Connect with me on LinkedIn. You know, at some point I'll start promoting myself again. Right now I'm anti-LinkedIn. They're a horrible monopoly. Yeah, check out my book if you're interested in this kind of stuff. The second edition I'm super psyched about was written with a lovely millennial who is very driven, uh, American woman. Uh, So we, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And Jamie will be linking to all of those wonderful resources, the book and all the websites that you've just mentioned so that people can find it. It is a wonderful book. I know in this episode, we didn't go into UX strategy tactics or anything Yay, that was talk about uh, tangible in that regard. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But I think that's wonderful that we that we didn't in many ways, but definitely check it out, people. I um, also want to say if you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast. That's super helpful, only if you feel compelled to, though. Uh, Subscribe to the podcast. And also, if you feel that other people in your sphere would get value out of conversations like this, then please pass the podcast along to them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn, just under Brendan Jarvis. There's also a link to my profile in the show notes on YouTube and I believe also on the podcast platforms now as well or you can visit me at thespaceinbetween.co.nz that's thespaceinbetween.co.nz and until next time keep being brave hey!